Good morning again. We are continuing this morning in our study of Paul's letter to the Romans. We'll be picking up at verse 1 of chapter 3 and working through to verse 8 of that same chapter. Before we go any further into that, let's pray together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please attend now by your Holy Spirit to this reading of your word. Cause it to fall on the good soil of human hearts that you have prepared in advance. Cause it to take root in a permanent way. And then cause it to bring forth good fruit in its season. We thank you in advance for all that you will do in this regard. We pray this with complete confidence in the one who does all things well. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. If you've been with us for any part of this study of the past few months of this letter to the Romans, then you may remember that our working hypothesis thus far is that Paul sent this letter to the church in Rome for the purpose of introducing himself to them. And he did this all in the hopes of laying the groundwork for moving his base of operations from Antioch, which was in the east, over to Rome, which was further west, and which would provide him with easier access and support as he continued to kind of expand the gospel work into Spain. And since one of Paul's goals in this letter was to introduce himself to the Roman church, it was therefore important to him, and it was important for him as part of that introduction to make sure that they knew where he stood on some of the key points of Christian doctrine and just what his gospel that he was going to be preaching consisted of. And so it is that a significant portion of this letter is dedicated to his doing just that. And so in those places, the letter, for a significant part of the letter, reads kind of like a theological presentation, but there's more to it than just that. Now thus far in the letter, and after introducing his thesis statement about the gospel, Paul has ever since then been working very hard to show how the whole world needs this gospel. Paul has endeavored to show that all people are sinful and unrighteous and are guilty of suppressing the truth about God that is all around them, even within them. And as a result, all people are liable to the wrath of God. And Paul has taken steps to show how this is true, both for humanity in general, that is for the Gentiles, and he has most recently been working to show how this is also true for even the Jews, for the religious people, indeed his own people. And the end of all this is that all people, because of their unrighteousness, are cut off and separated from God who is holy and just. And if people are going to be reconciled to God, if they're ever going to be in a right relationship with God, then their unrighteousness will have to be dealt with. And a right standing, that is, a righteousness, will have to be provided for them. It will have to be given to them or granted to them. And it will have to come from somewhere outside of them since it cannot be achieved by them. This external, or as it's sometimes referred to, an alien righteousness, is that which God does provide and has made available through the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and has then been offered freely as a gift to all who will receive it. And for the Jews, for Paul's own people, that was precisely the problem. 
their unwillingness to receive the gospel message. And that was because, as a general rule, the Jews in Paul's day did not see themselves in the same light as the Gentiles all around them, whom they regularly despised. They did not see that in spite of the many and real advantages that they had as the people of God, they, they too still fell uh, within that same category as the Gentiles, as those who also needed a righteousness that only God could provide. However, rather than embracing God's provision in that regard through Jesus, they instead looked to other things as their righteousness before God. For example, they took pride in their ethnic identity as descendants of Abraham. They thought that would do it for them. They took pride in the fact that they'd been entrusted. They, of all people, had been entrusted with the law of God. And they knew it, and they understood it to a large extent, and perhaps they could explain it clearly to others. They counted on their circumcision as something that would protect and preserve in an almost mystical manner uh, their lives before God. In short, they were putting a great deal of confidence in those kinds of things. All sorts of things like that. In pretty much anything but... God's provision for them in Jesus. And so that being the case, Paul's been working to deliver them from their foolish trust in, um, in these sorts of things that in themselves, they're not bad things, but in themselves would not and could not protect them or save them or deliver them in any way. And he's done this in 2.17-24 with regard to their misplaced confidence in the law of God he did it in 2.25 to 29 with regard to their misguided confidence in their circumcision. All of which has led to where Paul is now. The beginning of chapter 3 where he's answering some objections that have either actually arisen and been brought to his attention or on a previous occasions when he's talking amongst Jewish listeners or which these are objections which he feels fairly certain would be arising amongst them as a consequence of what he's been saying because this is not the first time he said these kind of things to people. Because Paul has just uh, taken these two things then that we've already talked about that were very near and very dear to them, the fact that they'd received the law of God, the fact of their receiving the covenant sign of circumcision, both of those things that they cherished and they held in the highest of esteem, Paul had taken both of those things and really kind of cut them down to size. Um, and, and, and really dealt with the overinflated and misguided importance that had been attributed to them. And Paul wasn't just taking cheap shots at them, at the Jews, because he was a Jew himself. And he had been actually quite a zealous Jew for some time. But it was precisely because of his own experiences that he was so passionate about the gospel. Because Paul knew what it was like to feel dead certain, absolutely certain, that you knew what was going on and had it all figured out, only to then, uh, out of the blue, be struck down by God, have your eyes opened to see things that were right there in front of you all along, which you had completely missed. In the wake of that sort of reality, it's not hard to imagine at least some of the questions that not, might be rolling around in the minds of the Jews. Questions that went something like this. Chapter 3, verse 1 and following. Then what advantage has the Jew? 
What advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? I mean, why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Their condemnation is just. One of the challenges of this passage is figuring out which of these questions are Paul's, which of these responses are Paul's, which of these questions are from objectors, from Jewish objectors, who have a complaint or a question or a concern. So there's a lot of debate about that. And obviously I'm going to go in a particular direction. You may not agree with my conclusions on this. Uh, Feel free to tell me so afterwards. I'd love to hear your theory about it. But as I read this passage, it seems to me that there are at least three objections that are being raised here. At least three comments or statements that it's not hard to imagine falling from the lips of one of Paul's Jewish brothers and sisters in light of all that he said. The first one is found in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Just reading those two questions, right? What advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Just reading those questions tells you, right off the bat, that what some of Paul's listeners were hearing him say was that essentially... There was no difference between Jews and Gentiles. That's clearly what some of Paul's Jewish listeners were thinking he was saying. But as Paul will demonstrate much later on in this letter, chapters 9 to 11, that is not what he's saying at all. Paul wasn't making a blanket statement about the Jews that basically nullified the Old Testament scriptures. Paul very much believed that his people, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, were blessed. And they were greatly advantaged in that blessing. I mean, if if blessing means anything, blessing from God means anything, it must mean advantage of some sort. However, whatever that blessing did include, Paul also believed, and he's already made this clear in the letter, that it didn't mean, being blessed didn't mean that they were exempt from the judgment and discipline of God. Although that's what they thought it meant. It didn't mean they could sin with impunity or live any old way they pleased. It didn't mean they could put their confidence in some sort of external, formal religiosity that was not coming as a consequence of a real, internal, spirit-driven heart change. It didn't mean they could presume upon God's grace and kindness toward them as if it was automatic as if it was their due or their right to expect it, no matter what. But that apparently is what Paul's objectors here, whether real or imagined, are thinking. 
They wanted to believe that their Jewishness, ethnically and ritually, was enough. That it provided some kind of guarantee, some sort of safety net for them. But Paul made it clear that it did not. And so because it did not provide the precise advantage or the precise privilege that they wanted it to provide, then the question is asked, so what advantage has the Jew? What value is circumcision? To which Paul replies, much in every way. And while he's going to expand on what he means by that later on in this letter, he does mention one thing here, which arguably is what he might consider the most important advantage of all, and that is the fact that they had been entrusted with the oracles of God. And while there's some debate over the precise meaning of this phrase, oracles of God, the general consensus is that Paul is simply referring there to the Old Testament Scriptures. And by doing so, he's reminding those who might raise this objection, he's reminding those people of the privilege and blessing it had been for them to be the ones through whom God had revealed Himself. And that was no small thing. As Cranfield writes, the Jews have been given God's authentic self-revelation in trust or as a trust to treasure it and to attest it and to declare it to all mankind. The gospel events and all the salvation history that preceded them and attested them beforehand took place in the midst of this particular people, the Jewish people. They've been the recipients on behalf of mankind of God's blessings to mankind. In other words, in response to this complaint, what advantage has the Jew? It's as if Paul is inviting them to kind of step back a little bit and take in this bigger view to think about God's wider purposes, not just in terms of what he'd done and was doing for them, but also what he was doing for the rest of the world through them. There's more to be said with regard to the very real advantages that the Jews enjoyed, and we'll see that again later on in this later letter. But at this stage, Paul's content to just point out one of those advantages, namely the fact that they, of all people, they had received and been entrusted with the oracles of God. And I believe he does this in order amongst other things, to counter what is probably an implied and unfounded charge against him. That just because he'd asserted that their status gave them no advantage in one particular area, which is the judgment of God, that didn't mean there weren't other areas where the Jews were and had been and continued to be greatly advantaged. The second objection or observation seems to be a little more straightforward found in verses 3 and 4. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. In previous verses, Paul's already commented about the failure of his Jewish brothers and sisters to consistently keep the law. He's talked about that. He's talked about how that kind of undermined, for instance, their claims of having a special status based on their circumcision. 
and render them as if they were uncircumcised. The second objection here, I think, is kind of arising out of that reality. It's almost as if the objector is somewhat, at this point, grudgingly conceding Paul's earlier point about the Jews' failure to keep the law. But then, he's conceding that point, but then in the same breath, he's coming back and he's saying, in effect, so what? Even if some were unfaithful, what difference does that make in the end? Does their faithlessness mean that God too will be unfaithful? What is Paul's response? His first response is to say, in effect, no way. Right? No way. No, no way does the unfaithfulness of his people cause God to be faithless himself. How could such a thing even be possible? Even if every person who ever lived was faithless and false, God would still be true to his word. And then Paul quotes from the Scriptures, and in fact, the quote is coming from Psalm 51, which you may or may not recognize. It's a psalm of confession written by King David after his sin with Bathsheba. Why does Paul quote from Psalm 51 here? One writer has this to say, By using this quotation in particular, Paul wants us to recall that though David's sin was certainly punished, God did not withdraw his faithfulness from him. God never condones evil, but, it's an important part, his punishment of sin is part of his faithfulness to his people. Not a negation of it. His punishment for sin is part of his faithfulness to them. In other words, the objector here, this second objection, seems to have only a one-dimensional view of what God's faithfulness is and ought to be about. Namely, that God's faithfulness is only about His faithfulness to His promises, to blessings, to good things, to positive things. The objector's assumption is that even though he may be utterly faithless because God is faithful, then he can still expect good things. Over against that, Paul's quote of Psalm 51 seems to suggest, as the writer above has already acknowledged, that God's faithfulness to his people includes his faithfulness to discipline them and to chastise them, even his own people for their sin and faithlessness. And so in the face of the objector who acknowledges a woeful attitude toward the law of God, but is relying on God's faithfulness to bail him out in the end, Paul says, yes, God is faithful. You can absolutely count on me. But God is faithful not only to promises, but also to discipline and judgment when His people fall short of their obligation to live as those who truly are the covenant people of God. The third and final objection or comment I want you to see this morning is found in verses 5 to 8. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Now, what is that objection about? According to one writer, this objection is saying this. 
it calls into question. It calls into question the justice of God in bringing down His wrath upon people for their own unrighteousness when their unrighteousness is one of the things that God uses to put into bold relief His righteousness. It's like the, the, the dark background that frames this bright spot in the picture and And that's sort of the argument. Paul realizes that such an argument is really out of order, so he adds in parentheses, I'm using a human argument, almost apologizing, as it were, for even asking what he regards as a blasphemous question. Another writer has this to say, the objector in view at this point is saying that our sin, what he seems to be saying is our sin is valuable because it shows the righteousness of God in a way that we would not have known it had it not been for sin. Had there been no sin, there would, not have been, there would have been no place for the gospel. We would have never known, or at least never have known so well, what God's righteousness means. In other words, what this objector seems to be saying is that because good things come from his, that is the objector's evil actions, then God's wrong to be angry about it and to punish people because of it. What's Paul's response to these statements? One response is to point to the absurdity of this objection. Verse 6, Paul rightly points out that this objection, if sustained, would mean that God was guilty of wrongdoing, which cannot by definition be possible since it is God who judges the world and is himself not judged by anyone. The other response is found in verse 8 where Paul has an answer to the suggestion that since evil highlights the goodness of God, perhaps people should just do more evil. Paul simply says, their condemnation is just. Translation, that's crazy talk. That's what he's saying. As if to say anybody who would utter and believe such a ridiculous statement deserves anything they get. So at the end of the day, what what do we have here with these three objections? Well, in these verses, Paul is dealing with either current or anticipated questions to what he's been saying for a little while now to his Jewish brothers and sisters as he tries to show them that in spite of their being God's chosen people, they too are sinful. They too are deserving of God's wrath as much and as much in need of an external imputed righteousness as the Gentiles. The first objection was basically to accuse Paul then of demolishing any and all distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. And to imply by that accusation that he's basically contradicting the clear teaching of Scripture regarding the promises of God toward his people and the blessings that accrued to them because of those promises. And this is an exaggerated accusation. It was unfair. It's an unfair overreaction to Paul's simply and rightly pointing out earlier that their status as Jews and their having received circumcision did not mean that they would be exempt from the judgment of God or that they could treat the law of God as if responding to it was an option. They could take it. They could leave it. It didn't matter. Further, Paul's response to that objection was to say very clearly that he was not at all denying that there were real advantages that the Jews enjoyed as the people of God. He said there was much value in their circumcision, that is, in their being set apart as people of God. 
And later on in the letter, he's going to detail that some more. But right here, he simply mentions one way through the fact that they've been entrusted. They've been entrusted with the oracles of God, the revelation of God, the scriptures, through which the message and the history of God's redemptive purposes has been preserved and proclaimed to the world. The second objection seems to have risen as a grudging concession to Paul's criticism of his Jewish brothers and sisters over the fact that though they possessed the law and though they even boasted in the law, they were not very zealous to actually keep it. In response to Paul on that point, the objector seems to be saying, even if we have been unfaithful, our unfaithfulness does not change the fact of God's unchanging faithfulness. In other words, the assumption of the objector seems to be that in spite of their unfaithfulness, God's steady faithfulness amounted to a kind of hall pass by means of which they could continue to expect the blessing of God as if to say, yes, we have been unfaithful, but God has been true and faithful, so it's all good. In response to this, Paul agrees wholeheartedly that God has been. He always will be faithful. He'll be true when everybody else and everything else is false. But then Paul turns that around on this objector when he quotes from Psalm 51, recalling God's dealings with David in the aftermath, which ultimately are gracious. But by that seems to suggest that God's faithfulness is just as much seen when He disciplines His people as when He blesses His people. Both times he's being faithful to you and to me. Christians today are just as much in danger of developing a hall pass mentality with regard to the grace and mercy of God as were the Jews in Paul's day. We are just as much in danger of presuming upon the grace of God, assuming that his faithfulness to us will always be one-dimensional always coming to us in the form of blessings, when in actual fact it may well be bruisings and or sometimes severe providences and difficult but ultimately lovingly administered discipline at the hand of a loving father. Equally, we're in danger of becoming flippant, casual about our sin and faithlessness, treating it if it doesn't matter, in the end, no longer grieving over things that continue to grieve the Holy Spirit. The third objection comes across as a kind of brash, even high-handed form of rebellion that's almost a, a last-ditch effort. It has the audacity to look at sin and lies and evil actions, and then through the clever use of words and arguments that seem to be sophisticated, suggest that these are actually ultimately good and helpful things because they only serve to clearly highlight the righteousness and goodness of God. And as such, it seems highly unfair to be condemned for something that actually promotes God's glory, doesn't it? And what this third objection or set of objections illustrates very clearly is the links, the great links to which the human heart is prepared to go in its determination not to submit to God and to cling stubbornly to its sin and rebellion, even 
to cling to it even at the cost of God's own reputation. Even being prepared to throw God under the bus, to accuse Him of unfairness or wrongdoing, rather than see it in ourselves. The perversity and culpability of such an action is so clear in Paul's mind that he doesn't even bother to argue this point. To those who would do such things, he simply says, their condemnation is just. And this too ought to send a sober warning to any who in a similar anyone who in a similar fashion might attempt to stave off God's truth by arguing in ways that perhaps on the surface seem clever and which at first seem to be sincere and raise genuine questions but which right underneath are simply a trivializing and trifling with the truth of God trifling with God himself and that evidence is a preparedness to easily and quickly believe all kinds of untrue characterizations about God before we will own up to one true admission about ourselves. Let's pray together. Father, we um, we pray this morning for both ourselves as those who know you, at least I believe most of us here do, and pray for others, Father, that don't know you or may not know you. Some of them may be here, some of them are people that we know through other venues, other situations. We pray for ourselves and we pray for them. As, uh, as we both at different times work so hard to avoid the truth that you want us to hear. Paul felt a great burden for his brothers and sisters. He wanted them to see some things and admit some things about themselves in order that they might embrace the truth of the gospel. Father, I can't help but think that each of us here would know people in situations and circumstances where that is true. People that we know and love and care about who are continuing to, to attempt to stave off the truth about you. Who prepared to argue in all kinds of ways and to believe even crazy things about you before they will hear the truth about themselves as you see them and their need for you. Father, we pray that you would work in the lives of these people that we know and love, our family and friends, that you would use us in their lives to be a vehicle for your truth, for those conversations through which 
the work of your ministry flows relationally as we spend time one-on-one with people. And Father, we pray for ourselves that even though uh, those who, who have responded to you, as those who have responded to you, Father, we continue to resist so often your truth. We continue to find ways, to look for ways, to not hear what you're telling us, to stave off this truth, to convince ourselves of all kinds of things except for the things that are true. So, Father, I pray that um, you would continue to have your way with us even as you did initially when you drew us to yourself for that first time. Father, please finish and complete that work. Please make our hearts uh, soft and not hardened as Paul would have, I I think, very grievously watched um, the hardened hearts of his brothers and sisters as they didn't respond to his appeals, didn't accept what he was saying, didn't accept Messiah. Father, please... Help us to bear that as we see it. Help us to not become hardened in our hearts ourselves. But to remain open towards you. We pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake. Amen. We'll now take up an offering for those that want to support the work of this church through that.